for serving your country. And God bless you because of it. I'm going to take you on a little journey this morning. It's a journey that I actually took 48 years ago. How time flies. And I'm going to have to use the I pronoun a lot because to tell you what happened, I'm going to have to put myself into the narrative. But I want you to look behind what I'm saying, behind the scenes, and see what God is doing, okay? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, you're an awesome God. And we just want to thank you today for keeping your watch care over us. I want to thank you for all the veterans and their families that are here, all the church members and their families. And now as we go into this few moments together in worship, may everything that we say and do glorify your holy name. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to press some buttons here and see if I get the right one. Nope. Try this one. All right. Michael, you'll just have to move the slides. December 6, 1970. It had been a good day. No one killed, no one wounded, and no enemy contact. That evening, as the sun was sinking in the western sky, Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 46th Regiment, 196th Light Infantry Brigade of the Americal, the 23rd Infantry Division, was making its way into its night defensive position. We're gonna have to adjust the slide. Lapel's off. Screen the uh, nomenclature for the first uh, Delta Company, first battalion. They were called the professionals. Let's change the slide. They were based out of Chulai. They were based off of uh, a fire base called Professional. And when I got there, they were moving from Professional to Firebase Marianne. Let's change the slide. Firebase Marianne was ill fated. It was a firebase that was due for enemy activity. It was the furthest firebase, furthest American presence in I-Corps out. It was the furthest out. Let's change this slide. You'll see it on the map where the flag is. There were no other American facilities out that far. We were working off the Burlington Trail, which was a tributary of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And it was our job to stop the enemy from infiltrating into South Vietnam. Let's change the slide. Yeah, that kind of looked like me, believe it or not. Um, I wasn't uh, necessarily there totally by choice. I did join the Army, but uh, through due to some 
unforeseen circumstances ended up in infantry. That's not what I went in to do. I actually went in to fly helicopters. But anyway, I'm 19 years old, and uh, next slide will show you that I was trained to be a mortar man and sent to Vietnam, but the next slide shows you that I ended up, as soon as we get it here, next slide, I ended up being a member of a two-man machine gun crew. I was working with Gary, and uh, he and I became quite close. You know, over there you had to watch out for each other because the enemy was all around. There were no front lines like in uh, World War I, World War II. The enemy was all around. And next slide will show you that we happened every night to go up and make our way up into a high mountain and circle around the top and set up our encampment and we had the trail up in there booby trap so if anybody tried to come up through and trip flares out in front and claymore mines you know it was war folk and I remember that night as we were making our way to go into our night encampment I felt very uncomfortable and the reason I felt uncomfortable is that Gary had taken off on me and gone on R&R &R to Thailand and I had a substitute gunner and his name was Dennis Leon Ruska. And Dennis Leon Ruska was a wild looking kind of guy. In fact, he'd been there one tour and came back for another. Now you knew something was wrong when somebody did that, right? But he had one eye that seemed to look out this way and the other eye looked out this way and he was, you know, he just, he just sent chills down my spine just looking at him. But I remember watching him as we were climbing up into that night bivouac and his swaying shoulders and I thought, well, seven days and Gary will be back and everything will be back to normal. And we'll go to the next slide. I think we might have a slide changer here. I won't have to work Michael so hard up there. Well, that night, That's the laser, isn't it? Yeah, let me try this one. There we go. Well, no. I put a black screen. Now we should be, there we go. That night, set up my hammock. We had hammocks. We slept in hammocks up off the ground. And I set up my hammock. I got into the hammock and I looked over and there's Ruska. And I said, boy, I don't really like this guy. And so I went to sleep and I fell into the deepest sleep I've ever had. And in my sleep, I'm dreaming, and I'm running through this forested area, and I have two people with me, and I'm very much in panic, very much afraid, and I, and I, I look back, and there come two people chasing us. They have rifles, and they have these suits on that, well, now that looking back, they look like UN peacekeeper suits, and I'm saying, what is going on? So I, I'm running through the mountains, and they look like the mountains of Pennsylvania, where I'm from not triple canopy jungle. And, and so I'm scared and I, I take these two and I drop down behind a rock and I'm just, you know, you can hear yourself breathing and I, I, I hear a rustle down below so I lift my head up over the rock to see who's down there and I see one of those gentlemen has his gun pointed right at me. I see it flinch and I feel my throat explode. And I fell 
back off that rock and at that same time I began to wake up from my dream and I'm you know kind of in my hammock choking trying to figure out what's going on and finally I wake up my throat is aching I figure we've been infiltrated I reached down grabbed my M16 clicked the safe off and waited to start firing and minutes went by minutes went by and I don't know if you've ever been in that situation but it seems like time stands still but after about an hour, I said, hmm, I must have been dreaming. Clicked the safe back off, put the 16 down, fell asleep, woke up, and it was way late. The sun was up, and I looked over, and Ruska is having breakfast, and he looks at me, and he says, all right, we're going light today. Leave the hammock up. Leave the pack. Just bring the ammo, the water, and out we go. I said, oh, that sounds good, but he still didn't look too good to me. <laughs> he did not look too good to me. Anyway, I remember getting ready and walking down the trail and my sergeant is standing there and he looks at me and he says, what's the matter with you? And I said, well, I said, I want to go home. He looked at me and said, go home? You just got here. I'd only been in country five months. But you know, it doesn't take long to get killed. You know that, right? But anyway, we're going down the path and headed out and then all of a sudden, I'm watching this butterfly. And it had been raining, raining, raining constantly since I got there. And it was a bright, sunny day, and the butterfly was flying. And all of a sudden, I feel myself falling to the ground. And I look down, and here I tripped over people's outstretched legs. They were laying down, looking down over into a valley, because down in the valley was a whole complement of North Vietnamese regulars. I felt like a fool. Anyway, I crawled up to the rim, looked down. Before long, we launched an attack. We were in a horseshoe. We launched an attack on that Ville complex. It was December 7th, and the attack got pretty heavy. We'd actually run into a pretty serious element of the North Vietnamese Army. And I want to tell you, these people were serious fighters. They were not something you joked about. Because what they didn't have in munitions and equipment, they made up for in intelligence. You left anything laying around, they gave it back to you. And it wasn't pleasant when it came back. Well, I remember that day we launched the attack from three sides of a horseshoe. Three American companies launched an attack onto that ville. And we just fired up everything. We had close air support come in. It was an all-day battle. It raged on, but by night the enemy had melted back into the jungle. Not a single casualty could we find on either side. That's kind of what happens when God gets on a battlefield. And so anyway, we set up that night. Uh, Ruska and I on the gun. And what happened was, if you, if you want to, this is a trail leading in. Now, this is a rice paddy dike around here. Just platform, be a rice paddy dike. This is a trail leading in to where we are. We have a contingent of South Vietnamese, and they're from about here around that way and we as Americans are over here on this side and I'd be over here and if you come and drop down off the bank there's a little road going back that way and then there's a mound and in that mound is the only foxhole in the place and they told us you're staying here tonight you have no shovels to dig in with you're here you're going to wait for the enemy to come back because they questioned the villagers and they knew that they'd be back well, we're sitting there, laying there, and sure enough, 
they did come back. They came walking right down the main trail, and the South Vietnamese engaged them too early, and they fell back up onto a hill after the engagement, and they set up their mortar tubes. Now, mortar tubes are scary things because you hear a thump, and you know something's flying through the air. You can't see it, and you really can't hear it until it's and then bang. Now, I know because I used to be a mortar man. That was my job. And anyway, they fell back on a hill, and they began to walk mortar rounds right across our position. And it, I heard one bang, and I thought it was just a booby trap, because we booby trapped all the trails, and I figured just booby trap going off, and Ruska, he's laying here, I'm laying here, Ruska says, oh no, we're getting mortared. He rolls over across me, and he rolls over to the edge of the, of the bank, where he's going to roll down and head over into that foxhole, which was a smart idea, by the way. And I said, no, we're not getting mortared. That's a booby trap. Well, then I saw the rounds coming in, bursting yellow, hitting in the trees. And I just laid still. I tried to get as low into the ground as I could get. Ruska lands on the top of that bank. He stops there. He looks over. He looks dead into my eyes. And he changes direction. And he rolls back. And he puts his six-foot frame on top of my body. And the next round that came in, came in probably about where the piano is there, on top of the bank. And it blew him off out into the rice paddy, blew me over to the edge of the bank. And I sat up because I was dazed. If you don't, you know, those things are pretty dangerous and they're hard to handle. And as I sat up, two more rounds came in right here, and I felt the shrapnel dig into my body. In fact, my VA doctor still tells me, I don't know why you're alive today. Well, I do. But anyway, when I got those last two rounds into my back, I decided this is not a healthy place to be. So I rolled down across that road and got in that foxhole. And that foxhole was filled with water. Muddy water. And my finger is hanging off, but finally we had it taken off. But my finger is hanging off, my back is lacerated, and I'm sitting in that foxhole, and the first thing I asked myself was, am I going to die today? And it was, you know, I was so calm in there. It was like there was someone else in there. And, and you know, I understand, I'm not a Christian. I don't know God. I know about him, but I don't know him. And all of a sudden, I get impressed, that, and, and it's just like somebody says to me, no, you're not going to die today. You've been shown how you'll die, and my mind was pointed back to the dream. I thought, wow, this is a strange day for me. But after the mortar round stopped, they finally figured out where the flashes were coming from, and the machine gunners opened up and drove the Vietnamese back. After they stopped, all of a sudden, that peace that I had in that foxhole went away, and boy, I was, you know, you start getting frantic because they just wiped out the whole end of the perimeter. They can walk right through there and do whatever they want. And so I got up out of that foxhole, 
and I made my way up to the company command post because it was right up the trail a little ways. And I told him, you need to get down and reinforce that whole perimeter down there because it's been wiped out. Guys were crying and screaming. Look, let me tell you something. The way you see war on TV is not the way it really happens. Take it from me. Guys were screaming, crying, and they had really mangled up a lot of fine young men there. Well, I'm sitting there, and the medic comes, and he starts working on me, and I'm listening to the, they called for a medevac, because there was a number of us hurt, I think it was about nine. And I'm listening to the transmission back and forth from the helicopter to the captain and, and to the RTO, and, and hear the, you hear the birds circling above, but he doesn't sit down, and we're all sitting there, and we're all bleeding, and we're all in trouble. And finally, the captain got on the horn, and he says, what are you doing up there? He said, well, I can't sit down without gunship support. And he says, I'm Captain so-and-so, and I order you to sit that bird down and get these men out of here, or they're going to die. So he brought the bird in. They lit a fire, brought the bird in. They came for me. I said, I'll get on last, thank you. I'm, uh, you know, in no hurry, because one mortar round would have taken that bird out. And we knew the enemy was out there. We'd just been with them all day long. Finally, they came and said, you're it. I said, okay. And they picked me up. I couldn't walk by this point. They picked me up, took me in, put me on the bird. And that bird lumbered up out of that rice paddy, just barely missing the trees as it went. Got up, got up, and uh, got up high enough and further out. And the medic turned on the light. And I won't describe what I saw. It was not good. But anyway, we made three stops in July at the hospitals. I was... Well enough, I think I'll just wait, and I was the last one off. And I remember going in and uh, into surgery that night. Woke up the next morning and got the orderly mad at me because they had put an NG tube down my throat, and they hadn't tied my hands. So I immediately just took it right back out. I had people all over me. Even I told them I wouldn't do it again, but they still tied me down. But needless to say, it had been a bad night. But I remember talking to my sergeant before we left to get on the bird, the medevac, and I said, where's Ruska? And he said, oh, he's over here, he's okay. Well, I knew better. No man could have withstood that blast and lived. He basically saved my life by putting his body on top of mine. I remember as we went through all the rigmarole, I had a colostomy for a while, and you know, I was in the hospital for six months. But in Vietnam, right when we got ready to leave, one of the guys that handles the medals came around and he said, I heard that Ruska saved your life. I said, yes, he did. So let me catch up these slides now. I get going on this and I get ahead of myself. But it came, you know, it was just, and there's a picture of him and medevaced out back to Chulai, and we're getting ready to be medevaced to the United States. And the metal guy came around and he asked me about Ruska. I said, yeah, he, uh, he saved my life. And so he said, well, what would you recommend him for? I said, well, I'd recommend him for the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so he wrote it up. And I remember the last thing I did before I got on the plane, uh, in fact, he held the planes up while I tried to sign with his bandaged up hand. He signed the recommendation for the Medal of Honor. We got back here to the United States, uh, came in through New Jersey, and went to Valley Forge General Hospital. 
and I was a patient there from about the end of January. I went to Japan and stayed in Japan for about a month and then came back. And on March 28, 1971, there came an announcement across Armed Forces Radio that uh, Fire Support Base Marianne had been basically overrun. And I was due to uh, circulate up on the hill there on the mortar starting in January, so I would have been on the hill the night that the North Vietnamese and VC came through. Actually, it was a VC. They were sappers. They came in through the wire. And uh, they did some serious damage. But I am uh, fortunate in that I got out in the way I did. Now, this is... This book is called Sappers in the Wire, Keith William Nolan. Keith is dead now. He tried to contact me on information and I just was not processing it. But notice what he writes about that night. He says, enemy sappers slipped through the defensive wire around Firebase Marianne without alerting a single guard on a single perimeter wire. They came in, went through the wire and began using deadly charges to hurt people he said, in the ensuing chaos, 30 U.S. soldiers were killed and 82 were wounded. It was, a, it was well, it was called the worst massacre in uh, Marical Division history. He wrote up in time, okay. You can see it was, it was well publicized. I would have been up on the hill in the mortars, but here I am at Valley Forge General Hospital, but I am still wondering why in the world would this guy that I did not like put his body across mine and save my life? Because that's what he did. Well, I got out June of 1971, discharged directly from the hospital to civilian life. I'm still wounded and wondering. I still today have times when I wonder. But I managed to get through college, actually nine years of it. It took a while to get me smartened up. I was a dumb kid. And uh, I got a job with GAO. It was then the General Accounting Office, now the Government Accountability Office. We were the audit arm of Congress. We did a lot of work with senators, congressmen. Um, and I got sent on a training exercise to Social Security Administration. And when I was there, I got put in a room with these two strange-looking people. They were really strange-looking. You know, I was on the party circuit, and I don't know what circuit they were on. But I heard them talking one day, and I heard one say, well, did you get over to the church last night? No, I picked, perked up my ears, and I said, church. And I said, well, what church do you go to? And I saw one look at the other and smile. And you, know, you ever feel like you're being had? And he said, well, we go to the Seventh-day Adventist church. I said, the Seventh-day what? He said, the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, look, you're talking to a guy who's never heard of Seventh-day Adventism. Oh, I said, okay. And then I said, no, that's fine. I said, okay, well, all right, Seventh-day Adventist. What do they believe? I saw them look at each other and smile again, and I knew I was being had then. And they said, well, we believe in da 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 and we keep the Sabbath. I said, so what? So does everybody else. Oh, no. They keep Sunday. What's the next logical question? What's the difference? Well, before I left there, I was going back to D.C. on my own audit site. And uh, Frank Coleman came in and he said, you really want to know what Seventh-day Adventists believe? I said, sure. 
So he went around, he pulled down all the blinds in the office. I'm saying, what are we going, CIA covert now? You got to pull the blinds down? And then in two hours, Frank gave me the great controversy. Never opened a Bible, never opened a book. He just told me the great controversy from start to finish. And he handed me this stack of books when I went out the door. Heard of Desire of Ages, Steps to Christ, Great Con. You've heard of those books, right? Well, I'm, you know, I've got an hour commute into D.C. now to General Services Administration, and I'm saying, hey, I'm going to read this stuff, and I'll prove these guys wrong. The whole world came, I'll prove these guys wrong right from their own writings. Well, you can see how that went. And the next thing Frank Coleman knew and Jerry Bogger knew, they were being called to my baptism at Tridelphia Church. Amen. Let me just say this to you. Don't ever be afraid to witness. I don't care how rough, and I look pretty rough. You know, I had a, I had a long trip down into, into stuff that goes along with war after I got out. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. You never know what will happen when you do. So anyway, Sapper's in the wire. Well, I went on from there. I left government service, went to Columbia Union College, and met my sweet wife. We got married, and then we went into the ministry. I ended up pastoring in Ohio, moved to New Jersey, and then I moved into New York City, right into Queens, Jackson Heights, Queens. 30 nationalities always seem to be at war with each other. I hope you guys don't have those problems here. But I could feel the spirit of God hovering over that place every Sabbath. It was great, except when the war was going on. But anyway, while there, Keith William Nolan contacted me. He was writing a book on Marianne. And I got this letter from him. And you know what I did with that letter? I promptly took it and put it into file zero. There's no way I can handle a 400-member church by myself and deal with Vietnam again. Well, he got, he got the book done. I got it in my hand here. Problem is he's got some information that I wouldn't have told him was probably incor was incorrect, but it's all right. It doesn't matter. The base of it, he got correct. And in his book... He talks about the recommendation for Ruska to get the Congressional Medal of Honor, but it was instead downgraded, the request was downgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross. And he says, I'm gonna have to read it from the book because it's my, you know, your older eyes don't work so well. He says, Ruska was recommended for the Medal of Honor. The award was downgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross because it was impossible to determine conclusively whether Ruska had meant to shield Brooke or if the first explosion had killed him and simply rolled him lifelessly across Brooke. Well, they could have asked me, and I would have told them. The man jumped on top of me. I, I heard his breath go out. He was alive when he was on top of me. But anyway, I finally had my answer. There are the awards, the Distinguished Service Crosses, and one in the middle at the top. And uh, everything, probably the badge of distinction for the Army Infantry Soldier is the rifle in blue. Uh, set up, I believe, by George Washington. 
Anyway, 48 years, wounded and wondering. I still wonder and wounded, uh, wonder about it today, but I learned three lessons, and I'd like to share those with you. We call them the three Ps. First P is called projection. You know, I, I took a look at this guy and immediately didn't like him. And I projected my feelings toward him on him. You know what I mean? I assumed he didn't like me. And we were just stuck together to work together. Well, I found out he could have rolled into that, down into that road and into that foxhole and he would be alive today and I would be dead. And I found out you can't project what you think about somebody else onto them thinking they feel the same way about you. He was the best friend I had in the world that night. I don't know that Gary would have put his body on top of me had he been back from R&R. Projection. Ruska. Man I'd only known for two days. Second P, prejudice. Now, prejudice is not good however you look at it, and we know that in society now. Back then it was probably more pronounced, but I was prejudiced against him, not because of his race or anything, but because he was a second tour man. I was, I was kind of, well, I actually got out and became a hippie for a while, so you know where I was headed, right? But he was going to make the military a career, and I said, you know, this guy, he can't, he can't be right doing that. And I'm going to say to my brothers in, in, here, and if any of you made the military career, I, God bless you, and I appreciate that. That's not a problem with me. Back then it was because of the national mood that was on. So prejudice, we got to watch that. That even happens in the church, you know. Somebody doesn't look the way we think they ought to or act the way, we, and we can become prejudicial against them. In Christ, we are all the same. We are all one. Amen? Well, I was a little prejudiced against this guy. I wish I could go back now and say some things. So when you have the opportunity, say them. Amen? We never know how long life will last. Notice, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in, I've oh, got to turn around and read this, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now that's God's counsel to us, amen? And that should be especially in God's church. All right, well, I'm still wounded and wondering for 32 years, and the final P, the third P would be prayer. There's a little dot on that map called Milton, Pennsylvania, and that's a place close to my hometown, about 10 miles from where I grew up, basically. And Milton's is famous for Chef Boyardee. Did you ever hear Chef Boyardee? Makes all the pizzas and everything. Well, for me, Milton is famous not because of Chef Boyardee, but because of a little lady who nurtured me when I was younger. See, my father and mother split when I was one, and I lived in 11 homes till I was 18 years old. And one of those stops in one of those homes was with a little lady, little Lutheran lady named Mary. And she took me to Sunday school. They didn't have the day right, but they had the God right. 
And she took care of me, watched over me and protected me, talked, uh, taught me. But I moved on from there into first grade, left her behind. But the interesting thing was, I may have left her home, but I never left her heart. And in fact, I went to see her after that 32-year period, and I'm sitting on her couch, and she calls me by my nickname, and I'm not going to tell you what that is. All right. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But she says, Blank, you remember the night you got hurt? And I said, yeah, I'll never forget that night. And she said to me after a long pause, I'm wondering, what's wrong with Mary? And then she says, the Lord would not leave me alone unless I prayed for you. Well, here is this unreligious kid, 19 years old, about to get killed, and all of a sudden he is saved, and he's wondered why that happened for, what, 30-some years, and finally he knows. God had a surrogate mother of his praying for him thousands of miles away. Prayer. Finally figured it out. But I want you to notice what Lieutenant Schmidt wrote, even about getting those of us who survived out of there. Now notice what he said. He says, it was very tenuous about whether we could even get the people out because within 20 feet of where I had lit the fire was a huge boulder that a chopper blade could have easily hit. It would have killed everybody on the chopper plus us. I don't know how we brought that medevac in without hitting it. It was just meant to be, I guess. No, it wasn't meant to be. It was meant to be, but only because God had somebody praying that it would happen. Well, there she is, was. She died last January. 83 years old. Um, I am convinced today that I am alive because of her prayers. And God needed somebody to pray, and there was nobody else in my family, I can tell you that, that was praying. But she was praying. And we're alive. I went to Cosmopolis, Washington, on a trip out there, a business trip. And there on a hillside, there's a grave. Dennis Leon Ruska is buried there. We searched, my wife and I searched that graveyard for, oh, it was just so long. And there were flags on every grave because it had just been, you know, they'd gone through and put flags on them. And but finally, she found this one unmarked grave. It had a gravestone, but no flag. And there was where he was buried. I talked to his brother, and I knew that's where he was. And I remember walking up to that grave, and the, and the mind is a wonderful thing. Everything's stored in there, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, I was back on that battlefield, and I could smell death, and I could see the blasting of, of, of mortars going off, and I could hear the screams and cries. And I turned away. 
And I walked back and I said to myself, this guy's got to come up in the first resurrection. He's got to come up. So, I don't know. All I can tell you is that God was on that battlefield that night. And you know, we're told by the pen of Ellen White, she says, it is part of God's plan to grant us an answer to the prayer of faith, that which he would not bestow, did we not thus what? Ask. If Mary hadn't asked that night, I might not be here. God aroused her, but she could have said, oh, I'm going back to sleep. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. She could have said, well, you know, I'm, I don't have time. I got two little kids. I don't know what she could have said, but she talked to God and asked God, and God put his hand over me. Now, we're told in the scripture, notice what it says. Pray without what? Ceasing. Pray as if someone's life depends on your prayers because their life may very well depend upon them. You get woken up in the middle of the night, you got a burden on your heart, pray. Don't stop praying until God lifts that burden. There are men and women right now in harm's way, in the military, out of the military, your friends, your, your, your family. Don't ever stop praying. Amen? I don't care how bad they are. You would have looked at me, you would have said, man, there's no way this guy's going to amount to anything. With God, all things are possible. You say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, you are awesome. You keep your hand over us. You sacrificed your son for us. We have nothing to fear for the future except that we leave your side. I would pray that everyone here today makes a decision right now that they are going to keep their hand in yours. They're going to walk with you every day until they see you face to face. Bless us, Lord, in that decision. And we thank you. Thank you for blessing all our veterans today. For we ask it and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.